0: Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 84, recorded June twenty-seventh, 2018. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Akin. And Brian, you brought a special guest along for this one. I'm so excited that we have uh, yet another perspective here. Yeah. Welcome, Nina Zakarenko.
1: Hi, it's great to be here.
0: Yeah, it's really great to have you on the show. And it's going to be fun to have your perspective on all these things. So let's get started. Before we get into the topics, I just want to say thank you to DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is great. If you want to try some of their cloud hosting, just go to pythonbytes.fm slash DigitalOcean. And for new users, you get a $100 credit. That's pretty sweet. Hey, Brian, we've talked a lot about Python packaging, right?
2: (laughs) We have, and I'm going to talk about it more today. Yep. We
0: were trying to talk about how to do it right, but sometimes it might go wrong, right? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, so one of the fun things is, um, well, I've tried to, I'm working on switching packages to use uh, markdown versions of readmes, but a lot of them are in restructured text, and sometimes, really either any one of them, sometimes you can get the documentation, it can be kind of a little mucked up, it might look fine on your computer, but you, uh, you push everything up all the way up to PyPI, and it doesn't look good, something's messed up. And so somebody wrote a document called correct or a article called correcting documentation for a deployed Python package. And uh, the answer, there's a couple answers. One of them is to try to prevent it first by checking your documentation first. And there was a recommendation of a tool called rest view, which is a a way to view your uh, long description of your package before you push it up. But even after then, if it, if you don't do that or if it's still messed up, to use post-version numbers, which I knew about these things, but I didn't know what they were for. So let's say your package is on version uh, 0.3.2, and it's messed up. Well, you can't just fix the documentation and push it back up again. PyPI doesn't let you push up the same version again.
0: Yeah, they're basically immutable once they're published, right?
2: Yeah, so if you push up uh, 0.3.3, with the fixed documentation there's like nothing changed nobody really has to download the new one but that's i guess what the post version numbers are so you can say 0.3.2 post1 and post2 and post3 and these uh, don't cause people to have to re-download if pip is if it's a pip dependency or something like that but uh, but it allows you to push up new documentation, and I thought that was
0: cool. That's interesting. So the post on the end means like if I do a dash u or dash dash upgrade in pip, it's not going to do anything, but it'll still let you update it?
2: Yeah, it's still, it still pushes up a new version. Um, I don't actually know if it prevents the pip install stuff, but at least in your version, your change log and stuff, you can
0: actually, I don't know all
2: the details, but um, <laughs> yeah. it's a cool trick.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a cool trick.
2: The other thing I wanted to bring up, since we're talking about packaging, is I was pushing up a different, going through the release process of pushing up a new package just the other day, and I was trying out the test. For some reason, I was having trouble with the uh, test PyPI. So, they, before you push it to the real one, you can test things out on the test server. But for some reason, the even the instruct, even though the packaging instructions are really pretty clear. I couldn't get it right. So the Python Package Authority has a, a document called Using Test IPI that is a little more detailed, and it helped me, and it was is nice.
0: So check that out also. Yeah, that'll help all the package maintainers out there. Nina, do you have any packages you have to maintain or take care of?
1: I'm very lucky I don't. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> I think it's probably a blessing and a curse to have a really popular project. You know, you just think of the people who um, created Django or requests or something like that and on one hand it's like sort of geek stardom in a sense but on the other All these people are asking you for changes and maintenance and all all kinds of stuff that you're like, I've got another life to live. (laughs) You know, this is not the only thing I do, right? So yeah, maybe maybe it goes both ways.
1: way. It's definitely a blessing and a curse.
0: Yeah, for sure. So uh, Nina, what's the item that you want to talk about first?
1: I want to chat about something that's not particularly new. It's been around for a long time, but it's gotten an update in the past year. And that's the Flask Mega Tutorial by Miguel Grinberg. Have you guys heard of that?
0: Yeah, that's a great one. You're right. He had that around for a while. And he actually did a Kickstarter to revitalize it, which I thought was awesome.
1: He used that Kickstarter money to put out a great ebook format of the tutorial as well. And for those of you who are listening and don't know about the Flask Mega tutorial, it's a, I have the page open right now, a 23 chapter Flask tutorial. And It's come up for me several times in the past few weeks because I get a lot of questions with from beginners about how to learn Python, how to really learn Python. They maybe have a good grasp on the language, but they're stuck on what to do next or they want to learn about web apps and they kind of don't really know where to go. And I always point them at the Flask mega tutorial.
0: Oh, yeah, that's really great. It's so comprehensive. I mean, you're right. It has three chapters on deployment, one for straight virtual machines, one for Heroku, and one for Docker. Yeah, uh, Miguel did a great job on this. And I feel like, you know, you talked about new users or developers coming in learning Python. There's just so many layers to what you have to do as a developer, right? Like, well, I learned Python really well. Well, now you have to learn about databases. Oh, okay, great. I'll go learn about that. All right, now I know about databases. All right, I want to put it on the web. How do I do that? Well, you got to go learn about Flask, get HTML. And okay, great. I did all that. Like, now how do I get it on the web? Like, well, now you got to learn about Linux or whatever, right? Just like so many layers and having having this is definitely helpful.
1: Now you have to figure out how to maintain and deploy the thing. (laughs) Yeah, there's a, a chapter in this tutorial about databases, but there's also one about dates and times, which is super important and internationalization. And then
2: so, well, I had one of one of the questions I had for you about this was um, I'm looking at a couple of different ones and uh Miguel does recommend some as he's going through the different topics some different um extent flask extensions, and have you found that his recommendations are fairly spot on for what you should be using
1: so I actually did go through this tutorial back in the day when I was learning flask, but it was the version that was four or five years old Uh, okay so i'm not fully up to date with what he recommends now uh what extensions does he mention
2: oh like like for instance um flask login for dealing with the user data or user login stuff and uh flask migrate for migrating databases things like that
1: i haven't Uh, used either of those
0: Okay. Michael? Don't, I haven't used a ton of them. I know he's doing uh, some interesting stuff with like some forms extensions. And I've gone through his tutorials somewhat. It's, it's really nice. Okay. But I, I suppose I mostly write in Pyramid. So I haven't been looking too closely. But I definitely I do a little flask. And I, you know, it's, it's good to definitely experience all the frameworks. And I have another one for you guys later. A pretty awesome one. So there'll be more to learn. There's always more to learn. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. So, one of the things I think is cool about Python is it's not like a full on compiled language that lets you sort of work directly with memory. And that means that there's no security vulnerabilities in Python, right?
1: There's some. There's a few. They come up.
0: They <laughs> do. So, actually, uh, so the thing that I want to talk about is a show by a uh, show. An article by Anthony Shaw, of course, it wouldn't be a show without mentioning Anthony Shaw doing something or other, called 10 Common Security Gotchas in Python and How to Avoid Them. So he's done some really uh, cool research here and talked about 10 things, maybe more than 10 things, 10 categories, let's say, of errors you can run into in Python that are super bad, can get your company in the headlines in the way you don't want it in the headlines. So uh, I'll, I'll run through these and you guys let me know if they're familiar or if you've seen examples or anything like that. So the first one, probably the most common one, is some form of injection attack. And when I think about injection attack, I think about little bobby tables. Have you seen Little Bobby Tables? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a classic. Oh, he's a classic. He's a trouble student. So Little Bobby Tables is like a cartoon, XKCD, about about SQL injection attacks. But there's also process injection attacks in Python that if you use process P Open and things like that, that you can actually do all sorts of badness by escaping or getting out of the, the various commands and sending multiple commands to the, the shell, which might also be super bad. So there's that. Parsing XML, there's basically denial of service attacks you can do by having a self-referential XML entity that refers back to itself that refers to itself that'll just destroy your memory and a couple of things like that but there's also ways to get around firewalls with linking in XML documents so there's some interesting fixes different libraries you can drop in as replacements that get around those attacks assert so sometimes people might think assert assert that you are an admin before I let me before I run the admin command things like that but in production you can turn off the assert statements in Python. So that could be, well, your error checking just left, right? That'd be bad. (laughs) Timing attack. Some really interesting ones that we've sort of touched on a little bit, Brian, previously is with polluted site packages or things like that, right? Like if I pip install requests and I like switch, I don't know, just misspell it somehow, somebody could publish an evil request, right? We've covered a few examples of that actually happening on PyPI. Let's see, temporary files, yaml.load, pickling. Pickling is evil. So I, I don't know. If, do you guys use pickle for anything? No, but it's
2: still surprising to me that it, it, Shows up in a lot of tutorials on how to learn
0: Python. I know every time I see it, I'm just like, oh boy, <laughs> there's got to be. Couldn't we just do JSON? <laughs> but the short version of the pickle. Oh, go ahead, Nina.
1: I was going to say I I have not come across any tutorial with pickle in it, so that's good. I don't know where you get your material, <laughs> Brian. <laughs>
0: <laughs> really old books. Yeah, it's like oh, we can just save that. We'll just pickle that. There's so many things wrong with it, uh, but security is one because there's basically a, a step where arbitrary code is run on deserialization, and that's not amazing and then of course patching your runtime and patching your dependencies so these are all just a handful of things to you know check your code for to make sure you don't do to check your infrastructure for and so on
2: yeah these were obvious to me i was expecting uh like the obvious one of don't use the eval statement on user data but um maybe that's just too obvious
0: yeah maybe i mean that one definitely should be thrown in there right that's definitely one that's sort of along the same thing as pickles, maybe even worse than pickles, to be honest. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot of non-obvious things here that people who have doing Python, been doing Python for a long time, like I had no idea that YAML files could be evil, but they can be really evil.
2: And one of I, the things that I really liked was his fixes are pretty easy. Just just learn about these, use these fixes, and it's good.
1: I didn't know about the that you can turn off assert statements in production. <laughs> I tend not to use them in code outside of testing, but that was a surprise to me and I've been doing Python for quite a long time.
0: It would be bad to go, why is it not checking? I know the check is here. I could see it in the code. Yeah, no, it just doesn't do anything. Yeah, so if you were running any Python that is basically exposed to the world in any way. Uh, you probably want to skim through Anthony's article. It's a good one. All right, before we move on, let me tell you all about DigitalOcean. So, DigitalOcean is a big supporter of the show. Our infrastructure runs on DigitalOcean as well. So, we're both their sponsors and we're both happy customers at the same time. So, you can go from zero to a server up and running in 60 seconds, probably more like 30, 35 seconds. It's super easy. You just go pick your Linux distribution. If you want it pre-installed with something like Mongo or Ghost, you can check a box and it'll just do that. Up and running, SSH in, and you're off off to the races. Really super reliable, super bulletproof, lots of data centers. Big fan. If you go to pythonbytes.fm slash digitalocean, you can get $100 to get started if you're a new user. So check them out and tell them thanks for supporting the show.
2: Once your server's up and running, go back and read Anthony's uh, article to make sure that it's secure. (laughs)
0: First thing you do is you patch your Python. That's right. So one thing that I don't use at all that I feel like I probably should learn more about are pre-commit hooks and get.
2: I'm on the same boat. I uh, I want to try to to we're we're using some things like linters and other tools like pylint and flake8 things like that at work now. But I want to make sure that they're want to get to the into a use model where they're just used all the time. Before it gets committed, and so I came across this um i'm not sure who re- referenced it but a a project called pre commit, which is built in Python, but it's not python only it's a it's a tool that can um start easily hook up a lot of these git pre commit hooks for you so you can run things like uh like lint or or black or other things before you check in. And uh, it's got some nice uh, nice features for it. It's uh, YAML-based, so it's really easy to read the setup. It does all the hooking up into Git for you. And I'm not sure, I'm guessing everybody individually has to do it once they check out a repo, but I'm not sure about that. I'm just getting into this. But um, also, one of the things I wanted to make sure I could do was to every step of my pre-commit, like if I wanted to run black or pylint or something, I could test that out. And it does, it has the ability to just uh, run each individual hook by itself. So this is something fun that I'm looking into.
0: Oh, yeah, that looks really fun. Pre-commit
1: hooks are awesome.
2: Oh,
0: yeah? Are you using them?
1: Uh, Yeah, I I actually use them pretty heavily in my last project, and they've saved my butt multiple times. One of my favorite pre-commit hooks looks for debugger statements. Okay. Yeah, so if you have a PDB.
0: Yeah, like triggering a breakpoint or something like that?
1: Yeah exactly
0: oh that's a really smart one yeah the i guess you could do all sorts of checks right like check for to do or you know not implemented all kinds of stuff that the people might put there like actually you probably shouldn't check that in
1: yeah and it's nice having kind of global team-wide pre-commit hooks where everyone's on the same page with things like checking for debugger statements linting Any other sort of maybe you have a line length rule that you want to follow and then breaking that down and having individual pre-commit hooks. So maybe checking for to-do and your initials or whatever scratch code that you tend to put in and don't want to check into the greater project.
0: Yeah, I see the real value of the pre-commit hooks being for team work obviously it's valuable for individuals as well right you, even individuals don't want to ship a web app that has a breakpoint in it but you know it seems like th- the value's amplified when you have a team and you can all agree upon the way it works and that just gets automated absolutely
1: yeah, yeah. I, i'm a big proponent of having a code style document where everyone's on the same page and Where if a team is working on a code base, as they commit code, it looks like one person is doing it. And you can't just point in a chunk and say, oh, Michael wrote that. It's got (laughs) his style in it.
0: It's got that weird triple list comprehension with an internal dictionary comprehension. We don't do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So we have kind of a a big, big piece of news theoretically coming today, right?
1: That's right. Python 3.7 should be released today. So by the time you're listening to this podcast, you'll have (laughs) it.
0: Fingers crossed. So if you go check out PEP537, this is the release schedule for Python 3.7. it says expected on the schedule is 3.7.0 finals, June 27th, 2018. That's today. So assuming everything lines up right, you should be able to go and download Python 3.7. If not, just pause the show for a day or two and come check again. Yeah, what are some of the features that you're finding really awesome there?
1: So now there's a breakpoint function. No more import PDB colon set trace. There's just a breakpoint function that you can drop in.
0: Yeah, that's cool. When I first heard about that, I was like, well, okay, that's nicer, right? But how much does it really help? And then the more I, I, I looked into it, I realized actually the PDB trick is tied to the PDB debugger. But there are many other types of debuggers you may want to use in Python. And this breakpoint thing lets you configure your environment to, when you say breakpoint, trigger a breakpoint in that debugger, which is kind of cool.
1: I personally use and love IPDB. It's kind of more interactive version of PDB. But the limitation in both that I, maybe maybe there's a way, but I never quite figured it out, was you could only type in one-line statements. You could put in semicolons and a few other things, but you were really kind of limited. You couldn't paste in functions or anything too complex. Now with the new breakpoint function in Python 3.7, you can just open up an IPDB shell and do whatever you want. That's so exciting.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really awesome. I, I think that's great. certainly makes uh, building better tools that plug in for that in place of PDB. It's good. Yeah, nice. We also have some new board members, right? That's
1: right. Yeah. The uh, PSF board member elections just finished two days ago, and there are now four new board members. I have not practiced saying their last names out loud, so <laughs> if I butcher them, Welcome to I our fully world. <laughs> apologize. <laughs> but we have four new members. They are Anna Osiewski, Christopher Nujibod, N- Nugebauer, Nugebauer. That's going to be my final guest, Jeff Triplett and then Katie McLaughlin.
0: Oh, awesome. Yeah, it's great to hear some of those folks in there. Congratulations, everybody, on that. And uh, I know... I know a number of us have voted, and it's great to see the community sort of putting in place these structures to keep it vibrant.
1: Yeah, I voted. There was a 47% voter turnout for this
0: election. That's pretty good, really. Yeah. I guess we could go for 100%, but 47, it seems like probably a lot of people like don't check their mail and the announcements just go right by, right?
1: Yeah. I- I'm super excited for them.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Awesome. Congratulations, and I'm really looking forward to installing Python 3.7. That'll be fun. So... We talked about Flask, and one of the big, I feel like one of the big blockades that's going to crack loose and really sort of change things in the Python web space is this async stuff. And there have been a couple of attempts at it. We've had Sanic, we've had Jepronto, we've got Court, which is basically Flask directly converted to be async awaitable, which can give it really good performance benefits. But there's a new framework that is just going like gangbusters called Vibora, the Vibora web framework. Have either of you heard of this? I have not. No. It's shiny new. So I went to the GitHub repository, and it's only 14 days old, but it already has 21 contributors and over 2,000 GitHub stars. Whoa. Yeah. That's pretty intense, right? So it's basically Flask-like, right? It's super inspired by Flask, but it's from scratch re-implementation or implementation of something like an asynchronous version of Flask, all right, so if you want to create, like, a function that is asynchronous, you just say app.route, you know, decorator, app.route, give it the URL, async def, index, and then return some kind of response. So really, really nice to create these, you know, async await enabled functions. And that that has some interesting performance benefits. If you go look at uh, vibora.io, they have some nice graphs, so they've got, like, Flask running around 30,000 requests per second. Pyramid running 35. Sanic 60. Vibora 150,000 requests per second on the same, doing the same processing on the same infrastructure. And I suspect the scalability is even better in terms of like, heavily IO bound things like I talk to a database, I talk to a web service, things like that.
1: This is really it, impressive.
0: Yeah. It looks like it um it's got web sockets built into it also. Yeah. And because the async stuff it's super easy for it to do without, you know, blocking and consuming threads and things like that. I think this is great. It's um got a bunch of things that were written from scratch for performance considerations and to make sure that async is first class like schema validation the template engine sessions all sorts of cool stuff it takes advantage of multiple cpu cores it uses uv loop that's the same thing sanic is based on and other c speedups it also has a really interesting thing that i haven't seen in a lot of frameworks called virtual hosts so in like flask or pyramid i can say the url is forward slash episode slash seven to get the episode seven or whatever but in here you can actually have different domains so you can have like docs.pythonbytes.fm and episodes.pythonbytes.fm within the same web app interesting yeah it's interesting right pretty funky and deployment's pretty easy it actually comes with its own server because WSGI is part of the problem WSGI like the foundational server bits and most of these things are is a synchronous interface. And so there's no way to squeeze async in between it. So it's pretty cool. Anyway, the docs need a little help, but it's only 14 days old. So I guess we should give them a little uh, slack.
1: Yeah, I, I just added a new start to their tally.
0: Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they've just got a few more. It's cool though, right? I mean, it's very much like Flask, but it's it's kind of a modernized version.
1: I was going to say, I was wondering about the name Vibora, but they explained that on their GitHub page. It means Viper in Portuguese.
0: Ah, oh, Viper, mm-hmm. okay. I guess Vipers are okay. fast. I don't know. I mean, they can strike <laughs> fast. I don't know about their actual motion. <laughs> Viper. Vi- okay, cool. And you forgot to
2: mention the best part. On their uh, page, the benchmark title has a rocket next to
0: it.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm a fan of anything with rockets. I know. A testing rocket for sure. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So people who are doing web stuff, this is a, a new one to keep your eye on in terms of the, the shiny new frameworks for Python. Oh, another interesting thing is this is a Python, not just a Python three only framework. It's Python three six or above. None of that legacy stuff.
2: I'm on board with that.
0: Wow, yeah, that's bold. That's awesome. All right, well, that's it for our items this week. I did want to give a quick shout out to one other thing because Brian, we kind of have we talked about GUIs on the show yet? I think so. I, yeah, I think we did. Maybe it was times. a while, a couple, a couple times. So we've gone around and around. So one of the major things coming for Python GUI space is. Qt, the, the new version, the Qt for Python, that's like PySide 2 Reborn. So, they have a webinar coming up where they're introducing all the features and stuff as it launches. I think that's in August. And so, I put the link to sign up for the webinar if, if you want. Yeah, I'm already signed up. Yeah, me too. I'll see you there.
2: That's Nina, awesome.
0: Yeah, Nina, you got anything else going on you want to tell people about?
1: Yeah, if you are going to be doing the Flask Mega tutorial, and you're not super happy with your IDE and you haven't checked out VS Code yet, there's a Python extension for VS Code that makes working in Flask really easy. And uh, cool. full disclosure, I work for Microsoft, but I also use it and enjoy it. So if you want to check it out, I can include a link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, sure. Drop it in there. I use VS Code periodically when I'm working on like individual files. And I know it does more than that, but uh, you know, I use PyCharm for some some stuff and then uh, definitely VS Code and it is getting much better. It's getting like the auto-completion and all sorts of the linting. It's getting quite nice.
1: If you think that stuff is nice, we have some really exciting announcements coming up just before EuroPython.
0: Okay, awesome. You'll have to yeah. shoot us a note and we'll, we'll talk about
1: them. It's uh, something that no one else has and that's about as much as I can say right now. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's that sounds exciting. Interesting. I think I can guess what it's gonna be, but I'll I'll I won't speculate. I'll let you do the announcement. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And then anything else?
1: That's it for me.
0: All right. Well, that's a good one. Brian, you? No. It's good. Although I do have a um it's a lot out. I've
2: got a a whole bunch of interviews stacked up. I'm finally getting some time to do some editing and pushing out for testing code. And uh Yay. Nina's one of the people. So um I've got an interview with Nina that um who knows when it'll come out and maybe in a few weeks. Awesome.
1: So, yeah. Maybe if you all email and tweet it at Brian, he can uh, be inspired to chop the, chop the audio up a little sooner.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you <laughs> go. Or better yet, write a bot that every 30 minutes just tweets at Brian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, can we did, call you, it, did I say that out loud? A bot? <laughs> It just tweets the number of days. No, just kidding. I'm going to stop right now.
2: <laughs> days no. since last episode. episode. That's
0: That was what I was yeah. thinking. That's right. <laughs> oh, I, I, I myself, I'm, I'm a little bit slow on this week on mine as well. So I'm, I'm not going to throw stones. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Nina, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And Brian, thanks as always. Thank you.
1: Thank you both so much. Yep. Bye. Bye.